You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining this special edition of the American Revolution. I'm joined today by author Kurt Avard, author of the new book, First Do No Harm, a work of historical fiction that takes place in the setting of real-life historical events. Our conversation was recorded shortly before the September 25, 2020 release of his new book. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Kurt, I'm glad you could be with us today, and welcome to the American Revolution podcast. Honestly, Mike, after more than a couple years of listening to your podcast, it's really great to have a chance to talk with you and with all the other history fans out there. You're here today because you've written a book, which I thought would be of interest to my listeners. It's called First Do No Harm. It's not about the American Revolution, but I I thought it was interesting anyway. Why don't you tell us a little about what inspired you to write this book and just what readers can expect to hear about? So First Do No Harm takes readers over to the 17th century in Vienna. Kind of an overlooked time period, an overlooked location, both in both world history as well as even European history. Now, as to the inspiration behind it, I, like I kind of intimated before, I was actually very lucky to have been able to experience this history, not firsthand, but at least the history of Vienna itself, having a chance to live in the city for about 14, 15 months. And I recall one of the first things I did when I had gotten to the city initially is I was told to check out a cathedral in the center of town, both the metaphoric and nearly the geographic center of the city itself. And while I was there, I ended up noticing some sort of advertisement for a catacombs tour and me kind of being open to the different kind of histories and moments that we overlook. In some cases, in this case, truly just walk on. I paid the five euro and I went on that tour. And that's when I first heard of this story of perseverance, of horror, of bravery, of courage, of faith, really going throughout this moment in time when society was completely upended by, like the present day, a pandemic that threatened everything that these people really knew. 
And I suppose that kind of initial research, that kind of initial story, drove me to ask the guy some questions, probably to the point that I probably began to annoy him just a little bit. But that became the springboard for the rest of the story. I turned into local kind of files. I, I turned into the history of the church itself in the area. I turned to find all these different things. And the more threads that I pulled on, the more kind of bits and pieces that I looked into, the more and more fascinating the story got. So for the story itself, this is a, a based on true events tale of a both horrible but huge plague that kind of came to the city back in the late 17th century. Now, the funny thing is, and I'm sure you'll probably wonder this yourself, is why the 17th century? And I, I think a lot of that really is because, like I said before, we don't really know about that too much. From an American perspective, I mean, the American history is we have Jamestown, we have the Northeast colonies, and then we jump ahead to the American Revolution, and then we're off to the races over there. Even from the European sense, we focus on things like France, we focus on things like England, we focus on things even like the Holy Roman Empire, sort of. I mean, I'm sure many of your listeners will know that so much of European history was dominated by places like Austria, who controlled a huge swath of territory throughout the ages. But we don't really know the ins and outs, and we kind of overlook so much of it because Austria importance has kind of faded. So this was a, a kind of a really unique bridging time between you know the High Middle Ages, the Early Renaissance, the Late Renaissance, and then what? How would you call it? Perhaps post-humanism where we have the American Revolution, we have the proliferation of democratic ideas yet again, and we have the French revolutions and the Napoleonic era. Yeah, that really is an interesting time that is overlooked in a lot of histories. And you say the book was based on, on real events, about a plague that took place in Vienna around this time? At this particular point in time, while we've come a long way from bleeding somebody with leeches and praying over sick bodies, we still have this kind of level of superstition that kind of pervades throughout the history of, of Europe itself. And like you just said, yes, this is based on true events. I, I will say the main character may not have existed. Maybe some of the other supporting characters in here may not exist, but I do promise you one of the biggest things that I want to keep in all of my literature is fidelity to history. Because I think it's very easy for us to get lost in sensationalizing things. And I think we've seen that in more than our fair share of films and books. And I think sometimes that downplays the true courage and the true fact behind some, in some cases, these life-changing, these world-changing kind of events that sweep through. Well, to that point, your main character, whose name is Dietrich, I don't want to give too much away about what he does and where, where the story goes, but he does seem like a bit of an odd bird. He's a member of the minor nobility in Austria, but he seems to reject that position and his rank and ends up taking a more active job among commoners working with the Night Watch. Why would an aristocrat do something like that? So it's, it's kind of intriguing. We have this perception of nobility throughout all of history as being these kind of just elitist forces, these people that kind of look down their noses at pretty much everyone else down below. And in many cases, I think that's completely fair characterization. But it was one of the things I started discovering as I was doing more research into this particular set of events, that there was a lot of, and I hesitate to use the word activism on the ground, but in the Holy Roman Empire, there was this spectrum, let's say, of, of interacting with the lower born people, of the common citizenry, like you and me. On one end, we have, of course, people like the emperor who's, who's concerned about 
the length and breadth of academic policy and political policy and, and military policy across an entire empire. And on the other hand, you have people that are a little closer to the daily lives of individuals kind of going in and about and moving through each day. And I think in many ways, we had a lot more people who existed like Dietrich, who were people who were involved in things like the Night Watch, because I'm sure you know at that time period, we, we still don't have any kind of modern police force. So this doesn't happen for another 75 or 100 years or so. We have people that are very concerned um, and, and very active philanthropically actually with people who are much lower born. And, and in many cases, that nobility, that birthright, let's say, and I hesitate to even use that word, tends to not really show the true character of what these people were willing to give and what these people were willing to share with other people. Yeah, I think that's true. I think, I think you're right. We tend to think of the aristocrats as sitting on their estates and kind of staying out of worldly affairs, so to speak. But, but you're right. They did get involved in things. And that's true in a lot of times in eras of, during the era of aristocratic ascendancy, for lack of a better word. I actually wrote a piece last year, which I was going to give to a history camp, which got canceled thanks to the pandemic. But it involved militia in Philadelphia in the 1840s. And Philadelphia still did not have a police force in the 1840s. And you saw, obviously, we didn't have aristocrats either, but you had the wealthy elites of the city who took a very active role in policing the city and maintaining various things within the city. Uh, that sounds like something like your character Dietrich was. I think what you say is true. And in, in, in many ways, what you make the comment about even goes back further and further into history. I mean, the first fire brigade, for example, in the U.S. was Benjamin Franklin, memory serves, right? Yeah, first volunteer fire company in Philadelphia. But even a, for the first fire brigade that I think I've ever even heard of was ancient Rome, and that was actually run by an elite. That type of active or aristocracy, I think we tend to kind of ignore in a very, very big way. And I'm sure we'll get into her a little bit later on, but Dietrich has a sister, Sophie, who I'm sure you'll say has a very, very different kind of perception than what you might think of a woman in the 17th century. That being said, I think that we have this notion, especially in the, pre in the present world, to kind of lump everything into a single kind of box because it's so much easier for us to see it as painting with a wider brush than to kind of getting into the nitty gritty to kind of like that variance back and forth. You mentioned Sophie. I, I was a little shocked by her uh, dominant role in the family. It is rare for women to be very active publicly, to be taking traditionally male roles. So I thought that was a very interesting plot twist, the way she if I acted almost like a man in, in, in the society. And that's very fair. And I think that's an entirely valid point to kind of make. But like I said, we kind of paint with a very wide brush. Just the, just the case might be another, in this case, historical figure who truly existed back then is the Empress at the time. Now, the Empress at the time is this woman named Eleanor. She is exactly one of those women that you would expect to be around and to conform to very traditional roles. By the same token, though, the more you dig into her story, you find things out like she rejected five monarchs around Europe to be their wife, which is just mind-blowing when you consider the kind of standard idea behind the times. By the same token, she asked the people who are poor to treat her like a commoner so that way she could better understand their struggles and that her philanthropism might be more acutely deployed, shall we say, that her finances could be more, you know, target the things that were truly important to them. So 
while it's fair to say that that Sophie is a little bit more modern, I think, than what many people might have said, there is a bit of an explanation in the book. I don't want to give the wrong impression here, but I will say that in many of the cases where she is more dominant, it is with um, people who have historically either been dominant and are losing that dominance. And I'm sure we'll talk about the church. That's exactly who I referenced. Or other people who are you know, beholden to her for one reason or another, which as much as we want to say about the philanthropism of, of elites direct throughout history, there also has been a little bit of quid pro quo, I scratch your back, you scratch my kind of attitude. And I think Sophie, in my mind, rides that kind of balance point decently well. You mentioned the church. And yes, the Bishop of Vienna plays a key role in the book. What was your understanding of how the church behaved at the time? I mean, this is after the schism with Protestantism. So mm-hmm. the church's position, especially in Northern Europe, was in a state of flux, I guess, at the time. How did a bishop in Vienna, this is a Catholic bishop, what was his role in society at this point? Like you said, the schism with Protestantism has happened. It's been like 150 years since we have Martin Luther. And that's a whole series, a whole podcast that I'm sure is out there already. (laughs) Um, (laughs) At this point, we have just come off the end of the Thirty Years' War. The Thirty Years' War is this devastating conflict. It sweeps over the entirety of Europe. We have this conception of the world wars being devastating. The Thirty Years' War makes them look like a sideshow. It is absolutely barbaric, some of the things that go on during it. This story takes place about 30 years after that. There is a very important thing that I think will give greater context to this, and that's the idea of the Treaty of Westphalia, 20 or 30 years before. And in this treaty, it basically says that the church itself takes a much less dominant position in political life. We start to see some of the modern notions of like what states become and how we see a separation of church and state. That actually is one of the areas in which I want to say Jefferson, in one case, starts to derive his own theories about how how we divide both the government from a more religious organization itself. In this particular case, the bishop that you reference, again, is an actual historic figure, Bishop Vilderich, whose last, his family name escapes me, forgive me, I don't think I use it but once in the book. But Bishop Vilderich, if you look into his biography as well, is both an extremely pious man, but at the same time is a great, very great humanitarian. And I think, while I can't speak for all the clergy back then, again, records are a little bit, a little bit scanty during events of this time, we have... Once again, the entire spectrum where we have certain religious officials who are very human and how they approach the world. And we have other ones who are very, I don't want to say supernatural, I don't want to say overly pious, but they're very traditional and how we might expect, let's say, men of the cloth during that time period to approach it. So we have this kind of weird thing where the church is trying to find out what its new role is in the society. So it's clinging to old traditions, but trying to become something new. So it's a really kind of fascinating interplay between the two kind of uh, sides of character. Another profession that plays a key role in the book is doctors, and most doctors in your book don't come off very well. The status of medical practice at the time had some very real limitations. They didn't understand germ theory yet. There weren't a lot of medications, so doctors were almost part nurse, part magician, part (laughs) performance artist. What message, I guess, were you trying to send about medicine and medical practice and doctors through your book? I admit when I tell most of these stories, I'm, I'm rarely trying to push a single kind of agenda. I'm trying to give you a lot of the facts to kind of put in front of you and to have your own perspective on. So please, whatever I say here, don't take as, forgive me for lack of a better word, gospel. But 
you're right to say that in medical theory at this time, we're not, we don't have that modern sense. We don't have that modern conception of, no, we need to make sure we clean our hands before we disinfect a wound. We need to make sure we do X, Y, and Z to treat a particular disease. That said, there was a lot of medical knowledge at this time, which has just exploded out throughout the era. We, we overlooked definitely, I would say, the Near East and Middle East kind of perspectives from about five or 600 years ago. That, that medical knowledge is still kind of limping into Europe from time and again. I guess the message that I'm most trying to deliver here is there is an awful lot of pseudoscience that gets applied, both in, in, in times of strife, both like you know, today's society as well as in historical events such as this. And I think the major message that I'm trying to get behind here is that there are certain facts that kind of breed certain results. And while I don't want to get too much into, let's say, how different doctors approach this deadly disease, there are ramifications to applying outdated theory and outdated practices to the current events. Answer around this ever so slightly, because some of these doctors that I think we're talking about do play another role entirely as well. The doctors at this time is always that plague doctor mask, that kind of crow speak, that kind of corpus mask, bone white, terrifying kind of figures overall. And I will say that any reader who picks up this book will see that there's a very big delineation to how people who are used to treating this disease might approach it versus how those who are outside of that particular part of medicine might go after it. I'm not trying to make an active attack on the medical practice. I think, like you said, to highlight the, the real, very real limitations of the time period, it is important to see that as opposed to now, where we can kind of toss a cocktail of antibiotics at it and solve something like the bubonic plague. Assuming, of course, we catch it early enough. These are people who were without any real recourse at the time. All they could do was try a purgative. If they were brave enough to try that bleeding of a leech, these were people that were caught without options in the face of something that was terrifying and real and all pervasive to the society. Right. I guess it's easier for us to look back today with centuries more <laughs> science and technology and say, oh, how crude and crazy things were back then. But they were people struggling with the knowledge they had at the time and doing their very best. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, and even then, we look at 100 years ago, it's civil war kind of medicine, and we think, how could they go and not do X, Y, or Z? And they were doing the best that they could. Right. Even, even 70 years ago. Good Lord. I mean, polio, for example, was what? We're almost 100 years out finally. But even then, we look at that now and say, wow, how could we have been so foolish at that point? So as we said, the plot of the book um, involves Vienna and involves a plague. Uh, at the very beginning of the book, Dietrich finds a plague victim in downtown Vienna. Mm -hmm. And that sets off a series of events and questionings to try to figure out what exactly is happening. And without getting into too many details about your book, it, it goes beyond just a mere disease. There's a whole lot else going on. And Dietrich comes in contact with some other people who may be humans, maybe otherworldly creatures. We're not quite sure. I think you bring up a lot of issues of enlightenment thinking versus traditional religion at the time. Is that what you were trying to get at with all that? Yes and no. The fascinating thing, and we touched on this before, is this is that time period that's between praise God, God controls all of our lives, and now where it becomes the state. Like I said, we're coming off the 30 years war, we're coming off the separation now, and kind of this independence between religion and society itself, where religion begins to take more and more of a back seat. These 
characters that you mentioned, I will say there actually is historical precedent for them. Without getting into too much detail, there is a, a theory called millenarianism that when great kind of numerical years happen, there are huge consequences that occur. One of the famous historical things happens actually just 10 or 12 years before this, the year 1666 was the year of the beast. And that, that was supposed to be the end of times and very kind of Nostradamus kind of uh, predictions would completely collapse. So the people to which you refer, yes, there is a little bit more gray area. Because again, I want to give that kind of onus to the reader to make their own decisions upon them. But by the same token, there is historical precedent for these particular people. I guess to get back more of your thought before enlightenment thinking versus traditional religion, I would hesitate to say that I'm trying to make too much of a preach about it. Again, when I'm, I'm crafting this story for you, yes, these events truly happened, but there is a tiny bit, a tiny bit of embellishment to it. So hopefully, <laughs> hopefully you'll forgive me about that. I know you and I haven't had a chance to really speak too much about the book after your reading here, but hopefully you'll forgive me the tiny bit of embellishment that might have happened. You also mentioned uh, there, are, there are a couple of Jewish characters in the book and, and some mention of Muslims, although they don't play a major role. What was the situation between Christian Jews and Muslims in this period and in, in this part of the world? Vienna at this particular time period sits in a very unique position between what's considered East and what's considered West in Europe. Shortly, I believe it's before and then shortly after the Thirty Years' War, they are attacked by the Ottoman Turks. There's a lot of fear and a lot of anti-Muslim propaganda. Unfortunately, at the same time, a lot of people in the city who are Jewish experience the same, the same kind of hatred, historical material that's kind of happened against, unfortunately, against their culture since they've emigrated from the Middle East. Vienna at this point was as cosmopolitan as you could get in terms of a European city. Vienna operates on this very, very strange node of being the geopolitical center of the HRE, the Holy Roman Empire, as well as being east of France, which is a major kind of political point, west of the Ottoman Turks, which is another kind of major political point, and a major trade node, both an exchange of ideas as well as goods. So we have all of these cultures that kind of continue to mesh in the city, some of which you can still see the influence today. Regrettably, our kind of modern notions of, of accepting and being more multinational, multicultural, didn't quite hold sway here. A couple of tongue-in-cheek comments being made about the emperor making a rather rash political decision to eject Jews from the part of the city. They were unfortunately still seen very much as a scapegoat in society, taking on the ills of so many things that had gone on. I think by adding both of these cultures into what would otherwise be a very kind of whitewashed Catholic Christian society, I wanted to at least acknowledge the true history that, first of all, there were these people in the city. This was not a number of Christians going through this and then bending on one knee towards a cross. This was a truly broad-spectrum, multiracial community going through this together. One of the major characters, I'm sure, as you will probably bring up, is Abraham at the same time and his wife, Sarah. Mm-hmm. Now, Abraham runs a small apothecary. And for the most part, Jews at this time period, if they weren't outside the city, they were expected to keep the religion quite internal, quite close. But the more that we kind of see Abraham, we see the way that he interacts with more kind of classically Christian individuals, we are able to see both, let's say, the stubborn ways of the older world, as well as maybe this kind of broadening sense, this broadening kind of community of fraternity that both this hardship brings, as well as these kind of new ideas from the kind of post-Enlightenment era. 
Right, European Jews always, and even unfortunately up until modern times, often had a very difficult balancing act yes. in yes. that they, they often wanted to kind of be guarded and apart from the bigger society because bigger society was often so hostile to them. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, they had to interact more with society so that people realized that they didn't have horns and weren't going to eat their children, things like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that because some of those some of those things do come up in the book. Uh, I, I will say there's actually more than a few funny moments between the Bishop Vilderich and Abraham as both try to reconcile and say the theological differences. Uh, and, and I think when it comes right down to it, we still need to recognize that past all the labels that we put on each other, we're still going through this crazy madhouse, this crazy set of events together. And I, I think to me, one of the things that was so enjoyable to hear that even in these dark times, we dropped all those labels. It didn't matter if you were Jewish, you were you know, North African, you were more kind of classically Arab. And please forgive me if, I, if I'm not able to break that down more culturally. You were going through a hard time and you forgot what happened. You forgot the former divisions and you tried to come together. And that to me, especially in this time period right, that we're going through these last long months and forever, However, who knows how long ahead, it was a message that I thought needed to be shared, that basically in these kind of harsh times, in these horrible kind of difficult times, this is the time to kind of band together. This is the time to, to forget old hatreds and forget old prejudices and, and to join hand in hand. So it was, just, it was a very powerful tale I had to share. That's the thing. Times of crisis can bring people together and it can drive them apart. You know, whether you're looking for a scapegoat to blame all society's ills on or, or just the fear of the unknown will make you hate the other group and want to lash out and attack at them. Or can we all come together and fight the common enemy, in this case, the plague and a host of other things? Mm -hmm. The book tackles that tough issue and I think does an interesting job taking a look at it. Is there anything else you really hope readers will take away? from reading your book, something, some main point or theme or idea you wanted to get across to them? The major thing I hope each reader takes away from this book, however you feel about the characters, however you feel about the strife that goes on, the, the many different kinds of conflict, the thing I want most people to take away is that these stories really are completely endemic to our history. We have this perception that Every single event that happens to us has never happened before. That every single moment that we've gone through, every single difficulty, is the first time in history we've ever had to deal with it. And one of the things that I discovered as I went throughout my research was not just that it's not true to, be, <laughs> to begin with, but also the fact that we have monuments made so that we recall all of these hard times and the way that we were able to persist in the face of them. When I first found out about this particular plague, I learned that there was a column three or 400 yards away down a nearby side street that commemorated surviving this extremely deadly, <laughs> deadly event. And then I remember standing there and watching as everyone kind of walked past it, just completely heedless of this beautiful thing that told of both such a hard time, such a sorrowful time, and such a triumphant one at the same time. And I remember asking someone in the city about it a couple months later, and her response was, I guess I never noticed. There just was a column to me. So one thing I hope that I 
can kind of encourage all the readers to do. And this is something that thankfully I think I've been able to come to grips with as well with the American Revolution podcast is that these events have happened everywhere. And I think that we do need to make a greater emphasis on paying attention to those and learning from those, learning the stories of those people who have gone before, learning of how they were able to kind of break through and rise above all the issues that we still face today. Yeah, I um, think that's exactly right. I, I, I actually thought about asking a question somewhat tongue in cheek about how modern viewers could possibly identify with a story about a global pandemic and <laughs> outsiders being feared and hated and, and, and all those things. But it just goes to show that there are cycles, that there are common themes throughout history, things that we live through again and again and again, and people react differently, but they react very much in the same way. The same mm -hmm. range of reactions exist in every time in society. True, true. And I think it's sometimes a great shame that we don't try to break that, that cycle. We, we, we find it all too easy just to follow the momentum around again. Learn from history or be condemned to repeat it. Exactly, exactly. And I think to me, this is something that we kind of hear occasionally about for those of us who've taken history courses or have been lucky enough to hear about it in various um, school works, we hear about the Black Death. And it's this abstract thing. Oh, yes, there was this horrible disease. There was this terrible thing. But if you read accounts of people who have been infected by it, or you read accounts of people who have suffered or have observed it firsthand, it's bone chilling. It's just a very powerful moment to kind of connect with people who have gone through that. Uh, I am born and raised in New Jersey. And I know that, for example, you know, 100 episodes ago from when this hopefully you know, comes out, Mike, you talked about the Forage War. And the Forage War, for me, I grew up 40 minutes away from the Forage War. I, I am within easy driving distance of Morristown, both where I grew up and where I am now. And I never heard about it in American history. And I love history. And to me, it was so fascinating. I'm sure we'll get to this later. It was just something that I had to learn more about. So if I can ask you, know, you if I can ask any reader who picks up this book, don't see this as the final word, either on the Black Death or either on the people who were able to kind of survive and go through it. See this as a springboard. Maybe you don't want to hear about the Black Death anymore. I don't blame you. It is a devastating thing. But maybe read about Austria now or read about, read about the church like you brought up before. It's a really incredible thing that's going on. Or read incredible women that we have just completely never heard about and I had never heard about before I started researching this story behind this event. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 
to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Turning to another topic, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your process. I mean, I know this is your first book for public release. How long did it take you to write it? You could make the case it's been about 10 years. I admit I first learned of the story back when I was in grad school. Like I touched on before, I was lucky enough to live in Vienna for most of my graduate degree. That was a point where I had never thought to write before. That was never really, a, a, wasn't even a glimmer in my creative mind at the, at the time. Writing began to be about six or seven years ago, that there's some other material that's gone on before then. There's a sci-fi book, which you know I won't bore you with. It, it was okay, but it was pretty much written on a bar bet with myself, could I do it? There's a couple dozen short stories, some of which I'm proud of, some of which I'm not. This book actually started in a Starbucks about 18 months or two years ago. I was lucky enough to meet another writer there. His name is Jim Ward. He writes a lot of kind of crime novels. And Jim and I got to talking about fantastic stories and stories that were overlooked. And this was the first thing that kind of came to mind to me. My, my normal nine to five, and I put that kind of in air quotes here, is that, like I said before, I'm an academic tutor. So my normal day was I would get up, I would drive to the coffee gym, unpack my computer and write for three to four hours. And then I'd do my kind of normal appointments, meet with students, try to give a little bit of history, maybe what, what I was doing to them, just on the off chance one of them might be just completely fascinated. To this day, I don't think that anybody was, but- uh, Is it gonna be on the exam? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And it was like, was it on the exam? No, okay, cool, never mind, kicker. I, I will listen to you, but I'm not paying attention. And it was that way for, eight months or so. And, and some days we're writing, writing came out brilliantly and other days it was very slow. About a year ago, I ended up finishing the particular work and I, I put it before a publisher who said, you know, I'm not sure this is the right time for it. And then March happened. We unfortunately are in a present situation now. And I thought to myself, this is the perfect time for it. But yeah. unfortunately, a lot of the kind of classic publications are very, very nervous about even testing material. So to me, this was something that I had to get off my chest. This was a story that I had to give out to all of you. So I took it upon myself. Uh, this is a, a self-published book. And I hopefully, I doesn't give off any impressions. I know self-published has a very weird connotation. I, well, but it has I been, get used to. I think more and more you're seeing a lot of really quality stuff self-published because you just, you don't need a large publishing company anymore like you did 50 years ago. And you know, Mike, I really appreciate you hearing and saying that to me because it's one of the things that have been weighing very heavily upon my mind these last long months here. But uh, I'll tell you, probably at least a third of the books that I use for the American Revolution podcast, and I go through hundreds of books, are mm -hmm. self-published. Well, and, and that's the thing is that I think that we we have this this predilection against what might be a fascinating tale just because it doesn't have a certain name on it. Right, and a um, lot of self-published people, well, publishers, first of all, they don't want to take a chance on an mm -hmm. unknown author, mm -hmm. but those unknown authors are people like you who have spent 10 years thinking about this book and thinking about and studying and learning everything. So they are sometimes the greatest experts in a very particular topic um, that a traditional historian or history professor or something isn't ever going to touch unless it happened to be their PhD thesis. So this I, is I, something I, that you, know, you focused on for so many years and was an obsession in your head, it forces you to become the person to write this book. That's true. And, and, and while I won't pretend to be the greatest authority on it, I'd like to think that hopefully I can hold a conversation here or there with uh, those, those, those a little bit more academically focused there. But I, I will say it has been, it's been a labor of love as well. 
I certainly do hope that it is uh, both an interesting read, I guess, you know, it was an interesting read for you as well as for other history aficionados out there. Through your research and writing process, is there anything in particular that surprised you either about the subject matter or about the process of, of writing a book? I, I guess I'll take the second part of that first. Okay. Um, so about writing a book, the first thing I think you realize when you're writing a book is, oh my God, where did this idea come from? I think there's this perception that you must be a Hemingway, you have to be a Salinger, or you have to be any number of people to write a fascinating book. The funny thing about it is that the first thing that you write, it may not be wonderful, but it's something that, that is this, this labor of love that becomes almost addictive. And I guarantee you that anybody who's written a book, they will all tell you that nothing they wrote on the first draft was worth, was with worth, was worth anything. So it's been fascinating to kind of learn that. Whether you're a perfectionist or you just want to get a thought down on page, just the act of putting something down is a victory. It's one of the greatest kind of things you can do. I'm sure you realize yourself with the podcast, when you first started this, you thought to yourself, no one's ever going to want to listen to this. No one's ever going to want to read this or hear about this. So I told my wife when I started the podcast right before I launched, I said, mm-hmm. if I get 40 people to listen to this, I'll be happy. And, and that's my, the thing. That was my expectation. Again, I'm sure you could, if you pull those back out now, you would say to yourself, what was I thinking about this? Like, no one's ever, why would, I wouldn't want to listen to this. Why would anybody come along with me for 175 episodes and counting? And that's the thing about writing a book. That's the thing about writing anything. So it could be a term paper for all you really care. Is that it's one of the most fulfilling things of creation you can probably do. Now, yeah, now I, I guess... The thing, you have to feel compelled to do this thing, regardless of whether you're going to make any money or really even if anyone listens to it, you just feel compelled to make this story known and that exactly. of itself um, exactly. will make it's it a, a great story because you want it to be a quality product and, and you want people to know this story. Well, and that, that takes us into the second part of this too. You said about this particular book as well. So I confess there's some other stuff I've worked on since then. This particular book, it, it's funny when you, you try to begin to almost craft a plot line behind this, the first thought is, oh, of course, you know, it's a sickness. Like, what else, can, what can you do with it? And then you start getting into the weeds. You start getting into those files and those books and those manuscripts that people don't really pay attention to that you can't find with a simple Google search. And you discover about people like the Empress Eleanor. Or you discover things about people like the Bishop Vildorich, who, by the way, is still buried underneath the cathedral that he once served 450 years ago, which to me is just astounding. The Empress Eleanor, I, when I lived in Vienna, I was actually lucky enough to get back there last year. I, I got to see her own resting place. It was just, it was, it's fascinating to hear all these tiny facts. And the funny thing too, Mike, I'll tell you, is that whether or not you think you have a wonderful story, especially it might be just with history, I don't know why, but the more you learn about history, the more you learn that all are so nuanced, so fascinating, and all these kind of strange little queer plot points that you couldn't even think about dreaming up actually happened. <laughs> like Eleanor, for example, I, I honestly, first when I was trying to develop this plot, it was, we need to find someone who's a philanthropist. And then you do the history, you do the learning behind it, and you find out they existed by the dozens. Or to know the Jewish history of the people in the city at this point. And then to find out, yeah, they were there. They just kind of got overshadowed by the fact that we have this perception of everyone just being Christian in Europe. The plot's been written for you. <laughs> like the, the, it's, it's fascinating just to see all the little tiny details and nuances that can create a, a very 
engaging yarn. You say your book is self-published, but I'm just kind of curious, what sort of process did you have to go through to get it published and get, you know, have actual copies of the book on paper that you could sell to people? <laughs> oh, well, I'll, I'll tell you by saying it's, it's a little, it's a long one, I will say. Given that this was my first intended fully published work, I confess to sharing this material as it evolved almost in a kind of Andy Weir style. I have several people whose word I consider impeccable. And as I wrote chapter by chapter, I was sharing it with them. One would read it for conceptual, one would read it for editorial, one would read it for both. A fourth one who didn't even like the genre would just read it because he wanted to see if he could nitpick it. And if he actually liked the book, then that was a you know huge vote of confidence right there. So I had this team of people who have given so much of themselves and their time, and I've, I've thanked them rather effusively in the epigraph in front of this, but that was just the creative process. I mean, you finish a particular draft, and this took many, many months to do, and the next step is formatting it for any kind of work, and there's any number of places you can go. If you want to, you can find someone to do it for you. You can get your material professionally edited. I was fortunate enough to actually have an English major take a look at it. I actually happened to be related to her, which is even better. Uh, made my life so much easier and definitely the entire process cheaper, which I think is a major stumbling block for so many would-be writers out there is that it can be a very expensive process. Now, I was fortunate enough to find uh, an online surface that handles a lot of the printing and distribution of any kind of text that you want to do. But then there's also the copyright that you have to take care of. And then there's the cover design and there's, the, and there's this and there's that. And, and I will actually say one of the things that's been just so amazing about this is I've been able to cross paths and rub elbows with fascinating artists from around the world. Mike, I, I admit you only got to see a PDF of my book, so you only got to share half of the cover imagery behind it. But I was able to connect with a wonderful artist out of Italy whose family, I think, she, she wasn't 100% sure, but she thinks that her family actually came from Austria at some point in the past. So there's, it's a lot of kind of up in the air. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a wonderful artist to give me her time and talents to do both the cover for me and the back cover, which honestly for me, I don't know which one I like more. I mean, back cover for me is this beautiful thing of the actual cathedral where so much of this takes place. It's, it's a process that takes so much self-education and so much stubbornness that it can seem extremely long. It can seem like a mountain. It can seem like something that you'll never truly accomplish. But whether you find an individual to help you through it or you just continue to pluck away by doing research and asking questions and trying to, to educate yourself. It's a long one. It's a very, very long one. I will tell you, uh, at this point, I think I've spent actually most of the pandemic, so most of the time since March, has been formatting or editing or commissioning all of these various pieces. Well, all I can say is job well done. <laughs> Thank um, you. Thank you. Now, with this as I said, this book is going to be publicly available beginning September 25th. So mm-hmm. you're, at, you're at the finish line now. With this project launch, are you, what are you working on now? Do you have any future projects in, in the works or planned? Yes, uh, to multiple of those. So one actually was inspired by this podcast. I, I mentioned before, never having heard about the Forage War. Mm-hmm. And like I said, living, growing up so close to it and growing up just through the heart, really, of, of so much of the American Revolution in the Northeast, I was shocked that I didn't know anything about the series of events. So at some point, I would hope in the next couple of years, I could have a nice solid draft down on paper to kind of both highlight 
the division of the time period as well as just the many unique moments of heroism on both sides. And Mike, I will say, I might ask you to be a beta reader on that one for it, but <laughs> just at least for the history. The Forage War is, is absolutely fascinating to me. For people who aren't familiar with it, I would describe it as almost a version of Vietnam, except the Americans were the Viet Cong in that one. It was just constant, lots of little attacks, continual harassment of the British, just breaking them down one shot after another without any major battle. And that's why it doesn't get remembered. There was no big battle that got remembered. It was just hundreds and hundreds of tiny little attacks and ambushes and, and pot shots and, and mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's just, it's truly amazing. That's, a, that's admittedly, I I've, have another project in the way just before that, but that's on my intent, I would say, within the next book or two that I'm looking to accomplish. I admit uh, a couple of things. One is that the events described, I could think in this current book, we are actually nearing the 350th, I think I've calculated that right, the 350th anniversary of it actually happened, happens about a month after the book releases itself. It is my hope, actually, in the course of the next year to kind of push out another kind of overlooked story, or at least one where we know a very, very bizarre version of it. So I have a, a duo of books, a duology or Deuteronomy, I'm not really sure exactly what the correct terminology is here, of the contact between the Spanish and the Aztecs themselves. Trying to correct, I guess, some of the misconceptions that are going on there. So I have a fully completed work called Night of Sorrows, which discusses a very, very fascinating event of its own. And then the, its immediate sequel is going to be Day of Mourning. Next year, we'll actually mark the 500th anniversary of the Spanish and the Aztecs having the kind of fateful interaction between the two of them. And I really want to go and share that story as well and hopefully uh, take readers on a, on a to discover a little bit more than what they might have heard in the history books thus far. Next project or two, looking for that hopefully within the next year, 18 months, at least pushing out one of those, maybe both if, if the fates are right. But I would love to return to the American history. I mean, the Forge War by itself has just been so fascinating to learn about so far. And I think you hit it the nail on the head by saying, you know, America's Vietnam, literally, or, or Vietnam's America. I'm not really sure which way the, the, the possessive goes there. But, uh, but to have that truly homegrown story and, again, shed light on another misunderstood or overlooked moment from the history books. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and also just the divisions between the, the Tories and the Patriots within. This. Exactly. It really was a huge civil war. And, and, yeah. and the third group as well, who just kind of stayed out of it and said, you know what, as long as my, I have my life for my goods, I don't really much yeah. care, which I, I think is a group that we never see. damn cabbages and sell them. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's, that's the intent. It, it, a lot of this really depends on, on the salience of it. I mean, I would love to say that this is going to be a smooth launch. I would hope, of course. Uh, But I have to say thank you to people like you who continue week in and week out to call attention to the stories that we don't, that we don't hear. I only hope that something like this, this book first do no harm can actually join those ranks at some point, even on on a much smaller scale than the effort that you put into this so far already. I just hope that at one point this can be on that level. Yeah, no, I agree. It's 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 always fascinating when you can read for the first time a story you've never heard before, and one that's exactly. that's true, that's based on true events, makes it all the more fascinating to me than than a, something that completely came out of someone's head. Truth is often stranger than fiction, as they say, and and for me, much more fascinating. Well, I will tell you that it's never more true than actually happens in the events of this book. I will tell you that right now. <laughs> as I said, I, I was 
very pleased to read it and very pleased that you could come and talk about it with us today. First Do No Harm, it's going to be released on September 25th. I really hope um, people can get out and listen to it um, or and read it. Yeah, listen to it. Listen to me. I'm a podcaster. <laughs> I really hope that people can get out and, and buy it and read it and check it out. It's a very interesting story based on real events and, and I think will open people's eyes to something that they haven't paid a lot of attention to in the past. Thank you so much, uh, Mike, for giving me the chance to come on here and just kind of share this story. I really appreciate every last second of it. All right, Kurt Avard, first do no harm. We look forward to hearing a lot more from you. Indeed, thank you. That concludes our conversation. I'd once again like to thank Kurt Avard for coming on the show and for his support of the podcast. If you would like to buy a copy of the new book, First Do No Harm, I've included a link to the Amazon site for the purchase of the book on both my website and the blog entry for this podcast episode. Remember, if you purchase through my links, I do get a small commission on the sale and every little bit helps. The blog for this episode also includes a full transcript of our conversation in case you'd like to go back and look something up. If you have any feedback about the episode, please feel free to email me, reach out to me on Twitter, or contact me through the American Revolution Podcast Facebook group. There are links to all of these on the website and the blog. Well, that's all for this episode. I hope you will join me again next time for another American Revolution Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.